You know, today I am so excited. We have with us at Fostering Change, Dr. Gail Saltz. She is actually with the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry. She has been on the Today Show, CNN. She has so many books out. You can actually visit rgap.org to read more about her, but it is going to be an unbelievable conversation. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast, Season 3. I'm Rob Shear, the founder of Comfort Cases and your host. Together, we have made such a difference in the world. We've met with leaders and change makers in the foster care system. We've met with charities and philanthropists, celebrities, authors, and so much more. We'll continue to bring you guests who will share how together, as a community, we can bring about change. Welcome once again to Fostering Change. So, you know, everybody understands that when we started Fostering Change, one of the things I truly wanted to make sure happened was that we had transparency. I think it's so important that people understand that when children enter foster care, they've actually entered the system because of a choice that someone else made. Maybe that choice could be because of addiction. Maybe that choice is because maybe they have their own mental issues and are not able to provide for a child. You know, as I was doing some research for my next guest, um, it really touched home. A lot of you who follow us on social media and you have followed the Sheer family, you've seen us on many TV shows, um, you always see a smile. And I do smile, but sometimes I don't think you understand what's going on behind that smile. You know, having five children who have come into the foster care system, because again, of choices that other people made, it's always not easy. You know, and I don't want people to think for one moment that I think that you should not adopt or support kids in foster care. But what I want you to do is I want you to come into it with an open mind, to be educated about what is trauma. What is the fact that brings them to today to make the choices and to act sometimes the way they act? And I'm going to talk about my son. You know, I've kept this very quiet, my husband and I have, um, but all of our kids, you know, including their father, because of me growing up in the system, we are dealing with something, some type of trauma. You know, I had a guest on just recently and I talked about the um, hamburger helper rule that we have in our house. The Shears don't eat hamburger helper. But because of my food insecurities as a child that was in the system, I must see a certain number of boxes of hamburger helper in my cabinet because I'm so scared, even at 55, even as successful as I am, I'm scared to be hungry. I'm scared to be hungry. Now just imagine yourself as a young child, a young child coming into the world, never being picked up, never being told you're loved, never being told that you actually matter. You know, that's what happens with kids with reactive attachment disorder. And my next guest, I feel, is the leading expert on helping us understand what is RAD, what is reactive attachment disorder, and what can we do, you know, to help children as they are navigating through this, you know, 
system of having RAD? And then also, what are we doing to help the mental well-being of our children in foster care? Dr. Saltz, I am absolutely humbled that you are on Fostering Change. I have seen you on the Today Show and CNN. I've heard you talk when my family started to go through I will tell you what I have felt like was a crisis. I felt like we're in a well and nobody sees us and nobody's throwing a rope to us as we're dealing with a child with reactive attachment disorder. I reached out to my producers and I said, I have to have her. And you said, yes. So thank you. Welcome to Fostering Change. Well, it is my pleasure. And it's, it's just incredibly admirable what you've done, the work you've done and and what you're you're living it you you you've lived it yourself and you're and you're doing it with uh, a family and just delighted to be discussing these really important issues with you because of course if you don't have mental health you you don't have health let's put it that way and so it's so important and the most formative years the years that the brain is what is essentially called the most plastic or the most changeable are those early years so it is so vitally important that we understand and we educate and we intervene in terms of treatment when kids are struggling with mental health issues in the early years. So my thing is, is that so my our children arrived at six months, two, two and four. And by the way, our oldest son arrived in 2019 at the age of 18. Okay, so um, we decided to have a fifth child and decided to have um, an older child who had been, you know, floundering in the system. But my question for my younger children, you know, even though they arrived at those young age, it took us many years to finalize the adoption. So there was still so much of that trauma of the weekly visits with the bio parents, the, you know, they show up, they don't show up, they, you know, they show up and they're on their phone, there's no bond, there's no contact. And and what my husband and I keep trying to figure out is that, you know, from, from let's say four years old to 11, everything seemed okay. It was, you know, my kids, you know, went to the best schools, they, you know, traveled the world, World. And then all of a sudden at 11, we started noticing a difference in one of our children. And we saw aggression. We saw lack of empathy, which is something that we've raised our children, you know, because empathy is not in our DNA. And we saw this. And now to hear that he's diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, how does that happen? Well, first of all, it as is the case with most psychiatric diagnoses, these are diagnoses based on symptom presentation. So it's what we can see, right? What we can evaluate, um, but they're buckets. And probably as is the case, for example, with clinical depression or anxiety disorders, there are going to be variations And it may not be all one thing in terms of the wiring of the brain that looks like reactive attachment disorder. And it's probably not only one thing that leads to reactive attachment disorder. First of all, it's important to say, as far as we know, it is a rare, it is a rarer disorder, let's say, but it seems to be, and a lot of the research about reactive attachment disorder was actually originally done looking at uh, babies, children that were in orphanages in Russia, actually, or in in Eastern Europe, where um, orphanages had a certain style uh, and, you know, people brought their babies and the babies were taken care of by a small number of caregivers. um, And 
those babies were, you know, left lying down, looking at the ceiling for long periods of time. They were not, as you mentioned, they were not loved up or cuddled. They didn't bond with one person. It was a rotating group of caregivers. Um, there was not a, a someone they could identify and trust and grow a bond with. And they developed these symptoms later of the inability to bond with someone, even if a permanent caregiver came along. And so reactive attachment disorder is essentially a collection of symptoms around that main focus, that that person has difficulty attaching to someone else, anyone else. And so maybe they don't smile very much. They don't, they're not affectionate in any way. They have difficulty communicating with others, certainly about any sort of loving feelings. They're not having those feelings. They feel, uh, as you're sort of alluding to kind of a mistrust, right? A, a feeling like uh, I can't count on. And, you know, while you didn't have reactive attachment disorder, that feeling of like, I don't, I don't know if I can count on there being food, shelter, care, presence, love, they don't feel that they can count on those things. Um, and it may be one of them or, you know, several of them. And of course, it makes the ability to stay in a relationship very, very difficult and to feel empathy um, and, and therefore to sort of have the kind of moral compass you would hope you grow in a person. Those can all be issues in, a, in reactive attachment disorder, but the biggest issue really is the difficulty in attaching. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, well, sadly, I, I guess I'll say the brain is our most important organ, right? And our most complex organ, but the one we still know the least about. But what we do know is that there are certain important developmental windows that occur very early on. And by window, I mean lots of proliferation of neurons and structure of the brain that occurs. And then that when that time period closes, so for example, in dyslexia, there's a window of time where a brain would develop the ability to decode words and therefore set the stage for being able to read. And once that window is closed, it doesn't really reopen so that people who have dyslexia who don't develop that um, always have, can't read in the way that the rest of us maybe can read. They can learn another path because another area might, and, and that might help them to be able to read. But in reactive attachment disorder, right, it's possible that there's a window of time where the ability, the learned ability, which is a drive in all of us to bond, right? That's, that's the, that's the survival mechanism, right? To bond as humans um, has come and gone without the stimulation and the reciprocation needed to create that attachment. And when that window is gone, it may not be able to be acquired later in the same way. So that may be a factor in reactive attachment disorder. But you brought up some other important things like trauma, which we know affects the brain in a very direct way. It has all kinds. We know many psychiatric disorders have an increased rate of occurrence 
if you have a past history of trauma in childhood, we could be talking about everything from a mood disorder to anxiety disorder to um, a substance abuse disorder um, to, as you mentioned, when you act out and you do what's called externalizing behaviors in adolescence, um, those would be angry, aggressive, rule breaking. We sort of wonder like, what's going on? Why do some kids develop what we might call the beginning of antisocial personality disorder, right? Rule breaking and not having a empathy, not having a moral compass. They seem to get a thrill out of breaking the rules and doing, doing something wrong. There often is a history of trauma in the past, but there also are genetic factors, which is a whole other area. So you brought up trauma. Yes, a possible real factor in reactive attachment disorder amongst other psychiatric issues. But then there's also the genetic factors, right? The biological factors. So all of these kids in foster, right? They have, they have a genetic predisposition to certain things. And many kids that you might take in from the foster system, you don't necessarily know what those are. Yeah, no. And I agree with you. I mean, for us, you know, when our children arrived, um, they didn't give us the book to say this is where they came from. You know, there was there was things that we were told, for instance, my one son who I'm 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 referring to. I mean, he came into the system. um, His mother was 12. You know, he came into the system with bleeding of the brain shaken baby syndrome and three broken ribs you know um to me that trauma you know is is you know and and my other kids you know um most they they arrived because of that quote you know that word they threw out there neglect um but you know it's we start thinking about that that trauma that he experienced from birth up to the age of two which you know i've read and educated myself that is such an important time of a child's life and to experience that type of trauma and everything that you just said is literally the textbook of what my my kids my husband and i've gone through but then i want to talk about you know my other children and other kids in foster care because you know i have a son who has fetal alcohol syndrome and for the first 18 months of his life he was never picked up and literally came to us with open bed sores um but to look at him now at 15 you would have never thought that this is what he had gone through even though yes he does have fast and his frontal lobe is not completely developed and he does go to a private school and he's developmentally behind of what a 15 year old is he's the most happy loving empathetic child you could ever imagine so you know i i want to know how do you feel about that nurturing part compared to um you know the dna part which i know his mother has psychological problems i know that you know a child would fast but i look at him and i'm like you know and let's let's just like it is. I mean, I look at myself. Okay, I'm 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 a product of the system. My mother had been married six times. I lived in and out of every shelter. The fun thing in our house was my father to take a cigarette and put it out on our legs. I have scars at this day. Um, but then I look at my brothers and sisters, biological, who have fallen to the wayside, drug addicted, suicide, um, can't hold a relationship. You know, and that didn't happen with me. You know, I've been married yeah. two years. It's you know. How does that happen? 
Yeah, well, gosh, I, I, as I was listening to your story, I was thinking, oh, I have to talk about that, I have to bring up this, I have to bring up this, because you bring up so many different important things, which is, um, so first of all, yes, we, we know that there are some constellation of genetics that play into what someone developed, but we also know that genes turn on and off based on environmental input. So this is why, for example, you know, you wonder sort of why um, there's this whole body of work that looks at children and talks about the fact that um, it's, it, it's, it's called, you know, are, are you basically, are you a dandelion or are you an orchid? So, you know, some children come into the world and based on their genes and then their environment, you see an entirely different production in a sibling, in a sibling group, right? Who you would think would have very similar genes. Um, some come in with, they, they don't need, let's say that much nurturing to develop the way they were always going to develop. Right. And, um, they are a dandelion. They're a weed. They will grow, um, and they will become fine, you know, fine and whatever they were going to be. And others are, let's say, biologically more predisposed to being an orchid. They are often the group that actually have psychiatric issues. Um, they need, based on their biology, they need more. Um, but when they get more, they have the potential for incredible flourishing, right? So, you know, I, I, I did a whole body of research. I wrote a book about this called The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. But the fact that many people with, with difficult issues psychiatric or learning differences actually have the potential for incredible strength. Um, and it's hardwired in. It doesn't mean that they will show that potential or manifest it. That has a lot to do with their environment and what is provided to them and what is nurturing and other exposures in the environment that probably partially turn genes off and on and really alter brain structure. So we know that brain structure has to do with some givens, but as I said earlier, it's plastic, meaning new cells and new connections are generated all the time based on stimulation. And so it can be harmed in the sense of trauma or non-experience. Nothing happening means thing areas wither, but something happening provides the circuitry stimulation to be active, and then that area builds strength. So the strength can be in the wrong direction. If it's, if it's a psychiatric problem and it's left untouched and untreated, we know that stimulates more problems. But if it's a loving and healthy and educative environment, then you're stimulating good things, essentially, and you enhance that. Now, you brought up that there, there, you know, physical abuse that causes brain trauma, not just psychological and emotional trauma, which is significant and does affect the brain quite directly, but physical trauma like shaken baby syndrome or, you know, lack of a development of an area of the brain, um, that obviously can have long lasting effect um, and, and, and could be even, you know, permanent effect of organic brain damage in the case, for example, of shaken baby syndrome. But it's also true that as the brain continues to be able to change, one might build new connections that make up for, you know, or build around. Um, 
And so that will vary person to person. How possible is that? Depends on the areas that were destroyed. You know, the frontal lobe houses judgment, consequence. And so if you have frontal lobe damage, we know that your ability to judge what you're doing is not a good idea. And if I do this today, what will happen tomorrow to me is impaired. And so a child who's suffered frontal lobe damage, which often does occur in shaken baby, um, you know, may be impaired on that. And so what is being diagnosed now, for example, is re reactive attachment disorder and acting out um, could have very much to do with something like that. And why does it present at age 11? Well, we know that most psychiatric illnesses first present actually in late adoles you know, adolescence and early adulthood. That is the first appearance. Um, it, it probably has to do with, you know, basically brain development and the production of hormones. And that combination is when you first see often the first presentation of a mood disorder, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, all of these things often first presentation is during that time period. So in a way, not surprising, um, also, you know, children are more controllable in those early years and their environment is more controllable in those early years as opposed to later when they start to, you know, rely more on peers and other aspects of the environment. And so in early years, things that might have been little clues are just not so visible, um, except for very extreme cases until later. Yeah, you know, um, and, and that is something that I've always said is that it seems like when puberty, I have one son who went through an early puberty, the doctor said, and as soon as that puberty hit was when all of a sudden we started seeing things that changed. And and now that I was, I'm talking to you, I, I realize, you know, maybe there was some warnings as a younger, when they were younger, but, you know, they the environment, I mean, when you're all of a sudden you're you're 11 or, you know, 13 even, um, you know, you don't have as much as we want to have some control over our kids. There is a totally different, but we're also parents who want our children to blossom. You know, I, I before we take a quick break, I, I want to touch base on the fact of children who enter, we, we have right now 438,000 kids in foster care. And as I travel the country and I meet kids and talk to social workers, I am noticing more and more and more children that are being labeled, that are being labeled with, you know, rad, they're being labeled with defiant disorder, they're being labeled with bipolar. Um, and I understand the PTSD. I get that. I mean, come on, I suffered from it. I understand the PTSD. But do you feel at times that these labels are being put upon children? Um, you know, because just to let you know, in case you didn't know this, in, in child welfare, if a child has a label on them, they get more money. Um, and so do you feel at times that maybe there's a misdiagnosis because these are kids who we automatically think should have these labels? Well, you bring up an important point. There, There is pressure often to look at a symptom, right, and, and give it then a diagnostic label. Um, the pressure comes from several places. One is that it does provide, for example, parents with services that they might not otherwise. So, for example, years ago, right, we called a child who was on the mild end of the autism spectrum who could still be in school and still verbal and so on. We called, we said they had Asperger's. 
but Asperger's didn't give you services, only autism gave you services. So we've changed that label. So now you're, you have mild autism. It's not a different set of symptoms going on, but there is a recognition that to get services, which for many, I mean, it's, it can be hugely important and a game changer for a lot of families. Sometimes it's really helpful to have that label, so to speak. Labels allow us to speak with other clinicians, to have some thoughts about prognosis, to speak with insurance companies for reimbursement. Um, but what you're also bringing up is um, what is what is the intrinsic value of the label? Sometimes it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's not great um, because it does put you in a bucket. And sometimes that bucket can seem very restrictive. Um, it scares people um, because we still have a lot of stigma in this country about these issues. And uh, so a child might not get taken because they have a label and it, and it frightened off a family, which is not a good thing. Um, and because, and those buckets are restrictive because as I said, they're, they're big buckets. Um, some children get put in that bucket and they do really well. And it wasn't presumed that they would and they can feel very limited by that label. So I like to talk about brain differences. There are huge, I mean, our brain is like, three trillion neurons, billions of, of connections. There are huge individual differences amongst brains. Some of the differences really that are difficult also confer wonderful things. And um, we're, we're, we're a little limited by these, these names, by these names. Now, are we overdiagnosing? That's hard for me to say. Um, the truth is for decades, we underdiagnosed. Uh, I see parents all the time whose child got a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which of course is one of the most common diagnoses for school children. And the parent goes, oh my goodness, now I realize this was me. I had, I have all these same issues going on. No one ever diagnosed me and it caused me these real difficulties and I didn't get any help. So we, we really underdiagnosed for a long time because of stigma and because of lack of education and awareness and treatments, and I'm not just talking about medication, but psychotherapy treatments can be super, super helpful and needed. And, so, and sometimes it's a great relief to get a diagnosis and, and be put into a system that helps you. Um, but you know, I, I, I hear you that sometimes those diagnoses can certainly diagnosis like antisocial personality disorder, defiant disorder can be, um, you know, very difficult and, uh, and so I think it's more helpful to talk, especially in young people, as young as 11, we don't like to give a diagnosis of, of antisocial personality disorder or borderline personality disorder or, um, or, you know, or bipolar disorder, to be honest. It's better to talk about symptoms, I think, in those early years to acknowledge the symptoms uh, rather than saying you have oppositional defiant disorder to say, hey, this is a kid who's, who has a lot of externalizing behaviors. And um, actually, there was just a recent study that I was made aware of that looked at kids with externalizing behaviors in adolescence who had trauma, um, who asked actually also on a study had, had an effect on their dopamine system, was a high predictor of, of psychiatric issues later on. So what's good about that information? Intervention. We know in almost every case that early intervention treatment makes a difference in that trajectory. 
So while I don't like to see labels that are usually reserved for later put on earlier, I do like to see the acknowledgement of symptoms that deserve treatment so that they can be brought in. Because when a child is, for example, as you say, he goes into adolescence. What happens in adolescence? Well, your frontal lobe is actually less active. This is for every adolescent, less fully developed until you're about 24. So those areas of judgment and consequence are not fully formed until you're about 24. So you have that set up in your brain. Plus in adolescence, your amygdala, which is the part of your brain that basically in, has sort of this, um, that was fun, that risk-taking behavior, let's do it again. In other words, generates a limit, limit on impulse control. That's overactive in adolescence. It calms back down after adolescence. That's why adolescents are known for their risk-taking behavior and their lack of judgment. And we count on parents to sort of help mediate that for a kid. So you take a kid who already by all nature should be doing that. You add some testosterone and then you give them these issues that your son had. And, you know, it's a much harder time. It's when you would see it come out. And that's also the time when you want to say, hey, this kid is now suddenly having these symptoms. Let's intervene. Let's do this psychotherapy that basically teaches them coping tools to deal with this impulse control, this difficulty with judgment, this desire to take risks and break rules, this struggle with anger. How do we teach them coping skills to manage angry feelings? And instead of doing an aggressive behavior as a result of it, find a coping tool to calm the angry feelings. How can we do that early and teach those things that then stay with the brain to change the trajectory? Wow. You know what? I, I'm going to tell you, this first half has been so educational. And I hope all of our listeners and viewers, um, you know, you really take something out of this. When we come back, um, I really want to talk about how the pandemic has affected and how do we see the long-term effect of what we have gone through in the last almost two years. Dr. Salt, we'll be right back. Everyone, listen, you can absolutely share this podcast. We need to educate each other because because whether there is a label behind our name, whether or not maybe we have some of these feelings or maybe you're seeing some of this through your own children. The thing is, is that how change comes about is the first step is you talk about it. You talk about it and there should be no shame whatsoever. You know, I said this before, I did a video a couple of years ago about how I deal with my depression. And the fact is, is I'm not ashamed of the fact that I do have to, I suffer from depression and I want everyone to start making sure that you don't have to be ashamed. We'll be right back. Well, we've made it to the end of 2021. For many, 2022 couldn't have come any sooner. This is just a quick reminder that it's not too late to make a donation to Comfort Cases before the tax year comes to an end. In this season of giving, we know many need your support. But if you choose to donate to Comfort Cases, you will be supporting youth in foster care and the organization that works so hard to make sure we're providing Comfort Cases and Comfort XLs to children who are entering our foster care system. You have to understand that 100% of your donation is tax deductible, and we would really, really appreciate it 
for you to help us make a difference. Thanks again for being a great human and happy new year. So we are back and what a first half. Um, you know, I'm still a little spinning a little bit because of it, because this touches us, you know, and my family this year's um, very personally with this. And to have Dr. Gail Saltz here with us to to talk about, you know, um, what we all should be talking about, because I guarantee you, guarantee you, you know, that you are touched by someone or maybe you yourself are dealing with something when it comes to um, your mental side of making sure that you're healthy. You know, Dr. Saltz, um, before we get into what I, I went the next step, I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about the organization, you know, the group for, um, avid, is it Advancement of, Psy of Psychiatry? Is that what it is? Uh, yes, so it's the group for the Advancement of Psychiatry I'm a member of. And we're an organization that's, oh gosh, it's, it's decades and decades old. Uh, but it, these are sort of the, you know, some of the most prominent, I guess I'll say psychiatrists, but people who've been researching different areas of psychiatry for a very long time and writing um, and sort of trying to move the field forward. Because, you know, as we've been alluding to and talking about um, there's tremendous stigma around psychiatric issues. There has been for years. It's actually the number one reason people do not seek treatment still in this country, even in 2021. But um, it's also been the reason, quite honestly, that uh, there have been fewer research dollars into mental health issues and psychiatric issues. Um, there have been uh, fewer dollars into uh, getting treaters, getting, you know, people on board to train and be available to take care of people. And so it's so important. We're really an organization trying to further the information, disseminate the information to people um, and raise awareness about the importance of research into psychiatric issues. Because, you know, as I like to say, mental health is health and our brain is our most important organ. And uh, we, we really can't afford to be behind in the way that we have been if we're going to, you know, take care of people. And, you know, I really do believe that we are behind, by the way. You know, when I see the increasing number of people who are experiencing homelessness, we know that that has to deal with mental illness. When I see the increasing number of incarcerations, I know that that is a connection of yeah. mental illness. When I see the fact that more and more of our younger adults who are addicted um, to whatever is out there today is dealing with mental illness. Why are we as a community, and by the way, I say this quite often, our community is not our zip code. Our community is our human race. And why are we as a community not standing up and screaming more that we need funding to help Make sure, I mean, because like I said, I mean, I'm heading to Baltimore City tonight for an event and, and it's every time I go to Baltimore City, my heart sinks because I see kid after kid after kid on a street corner um, cleaning windows that are homeless. And we know that has a complete attachment with mental illness. Why do you feel that we're not investing more into this, knowing that we could actually save dollars, one, building less prisons, 
you know, why, why do we think we are not doing this as humans? Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, you know, I can only give you my opinion now, right. but um, because I don't think there's some great data on this, but, you know, for a very, very, very long time, we viewed mental illness as sort of a moral issue. And we didn't see it as a biological issue. So there was there, you know, if you if you know, if we were in the 1950s and 60s, you know, and you told me you were depressed, I might say to you, come on, you know, like, uh, pull yourself out of it, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And there was just a lack of understanding and acknowledgement that it is as biological as diabetes or heart disease or, you know, and so that's been so late to the game. And in that sense, mental illness became marginalized and sort of a moral issue and hence stigma. And of course, you know, like, you know, in the last century, in the beginning of the last century and the century before that, we did, we saw it as evil, you know, as, as you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're possessed. We have to do terrible things to you to depossess you. So there's a really ugly history, kind of a scary history to mental illness. And I also think it's because let's face it, you know, if I asked you, what is the scariest thing that could happen to you? Period. Many people would rank losing their minds as amongst the most frightening, whether we were talking about psychiatric illness or something like Alzheimer's, dementia, right? Most people would say the idea that I would not be able to think or, you know, perceive things correctly or that I would have disturbing thoughts all the time to be amongst the most frightening things that could happen. And unfortunately, when we have fear, we, we often turn away, you know, you, you, you could, we could be talking about racism, right? We could be, we could be talking about homelessness. We could be, you know, there are lots of issues. And I think that sadly mental illness is, is in this category. And so many people, you know, just don't want to think about it um, or they want to believe that they are separate from it, you know, and that there's a line and they won't cross it. So they're okay. Um, and, you know, that has, I think at the end of the day, right, that hasn't served us well. Um, and also the brain is the most complex organ. So it's not as easy to, um, you know, say, hey, we have this blood test and the blood test says X. So we give you Y drug and now you're all better. It's much more complicated. And so that also has slowed our progress. I think, you know, one day will we be there? I think we'll be, we'll be much closer. You know, I think we, we, this is a really exciting age. And if we do put the money into research and understanding, I think this is a very exciting time in the world of neuroscience and psychiatry. Um, our ability to image in different ways and look at brain activity as well as structure via imaging is really blowing up. And, our, and so I think at places like the National Institute of Mental Health and other academic centers, there's some very exciting work going on, looking at the basic science of the brain, which will inform diagnosis and, and ultimately treatment, but also in new treatments coming along. We could be talking about, um, you know, electrically based treatments like um, transmagnetic stimulation. We could be talking about looking at new medications that fall into the arena of um, 
psychedelics, uh, you know, ketamines, uh, you know, different, different, we're looking at different avenues, but we, we really do have a long way to go. Um, and I think that in order for that to happen, look at, look at what happens, where does the money come from? I mean, ultimately it comes from the government, right? And, um, you know, the reality is that even though we're in a pandemic, and we're in a mental health pandemic. Everyone acknowledges it. The CDC has acknowledged. CDC has acknowledged that rates of depression are up 41%. Anxiety disorders up 41%. This, the last year, the numbers came out, you alluded to opioid overdose deaths up the highest it has ever been, ever. And deaths of despair, which is, you know, abuse of, of substances plus suicide rates up higher than ever before. This pandemic has taken a huge, huge toll on everyone's mental health. And, um, and so I think we have the need, we don't even have enough treaters out there to help all the children and adults who are struggling. Um, but at the end of the day, right, it requires dollars and there is this fighting for dollars. And I am afraid that, you know, mental health needs, we need, we all need to basically what speak to our congressman and say, this matters to us, you know, um, in order to have changes be made that there is more money available to look at etiology that that's where it starts. So I want to get into that, but I have to go back a little bit because you said something that I, I've, I've thought about quite often throughout the years. So many times I think that people think that there is a magic pill that you can take that's going to help. But what I've noticed, and by the way, I love my therapist. I see him every Monday. Um, and he has got, he has weathered me through some major storms. Um, but I also do take medication. And so I know that this is, this is, and take the pill and I wake up and everything is fine because even when I take the pill, there are days that I can barely get out of bed. Um, and so having that, that therapist, do you agree, agree with that as well? Because again, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I don't really need to go to a therapist because I take depression medication um, or I don't need to go to a therapist because I'm taking this kind of, and don't you feel that it's just not a one thing? It's, it's, it's the work has to be done both ways. It's not just what I feel. It, it's reality. Yes. Um, it is. So basically as we were talking about in the first half, um, the brain has uh, more superficial areas, like the frontal lobe is like in the front here, right up top. And that is a cognitive area that is affected by psychotherapy, by, by everything, by all the experiences you have. Um, you know, this is what's hard for people to grasp. Feelings and thoughts and everything that occurs in your mind that seems psychological happens by chemical right? That's how the brain talks to itself. So neurotransmitters like serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine, they're all released having to do with feelings and thoughts. And brain structure is changed as we talked about by experience. And, an ex and therapy is an experience. So when you learn something in therapy and you have revelations, you learn coping skills, that is making changes. We we've actually, literally, there was a study looking at obsessive compulsive disorder and doing PET scans, which look at brain activity on, on brains that were untreated and brains of people that had psychotherapy for obsessive compulsive disorder. And you can see changes in the brain from psychotherapy alone, no medication. 
So we know psychotherapy changes your brain, but what areas does it change? Frontal lobe areas. What, what we in my area call the top down. What does medication change? Deeper brain structure, um, amygdala, hippocampus, areas that are deeper in the brain. So the amygdala is a center for, for uh, uh, intense emotion, fear, anxiety, depression, impulse control, and medication changes those areas. So there's a confluence and they work well together, medication and psychotherapy, but each might only do so much. So yes, actually most studies show that for most psychiatric issues, the combination of therapy and medication works the best. Each one does something on its own, yes. And for some things, maybe you don't need medication. Maybe for some things, psychotherapy alone for example, for certain anxiety disorders, you might have a certain number of sessions of a cognitive behavioral therapy and really recover and be able to maintain yourself without medications. But if you have severe anxiety or severe depression, then your ability to learn the new psychotherapy is impaired by the disorder. And medication may be required to not only help the severity of the symptoms, but to allow you to learn, get better enough to learn the psychotherapy. So that's why, so I, when I see patients, right, I would always opt for trying psychotherapy first, unless someone is in serious, you know, I can see that it's severe, you know, they're, they're feeling like life isn't worth living, you know, I'm concerned about suicidal thoughts or um, uh, or such a compromise in their ability to function that I'm like, this is severe, we need medication to start. But otherwise, I would try psychotherapy first. And if they're not able to really make use of the psychotherapy, then we might add medication. Um, but you know, this is why seeing somebody who's experienced and treats people in the arena that you're struggling with is so important that they use their clinical judgment, that they really look at your family history, what you might have genetic loading for, what that might say about what's happening with you um, and really do a really thorough evaluation to choose wisely and have the capacity to offer you these, this, what we call multimodal treatment of perhaps therapy, perhaps medication, some combination, um, look at new, newer treatments, et cetera. But yes, to answer your question in a nutshell, both offer different modes into the brain of treatment and both can be extremely important. Wow, that I, I love that. You know, as we're winding this down, I I want to talk. You know, the pandemic has affected us all. Um, you know, I've it has affected myself. You know, I was this person who traveled all the time, and then all of a sudden, I had to rely on everything on a Zoom. I'm a I'm a people person. I love the hug. I love the contact. And now I walk into a room to give a talk, and it's I'm elbow pumping now and I'm not and and do I hug or do I not hug and so so psychologically I mean I I feel it within myself seeing what it's doing to everybody else yeah Dr. Saltz do you feel that there is a there's an opportunity us for us to see the other side are we gonna or is this gonna be our new norm because to me I think the mental damage you know I understand over 800,000 deaths we have lost in our country as we, you and I are recording this. Um, and that is beyond. Um, it, it's heartbreaking. But I also am concerned about the mental damage 
that this pandemic has done that yes. really need to shine more light on it, which means we need more funding. But do you think yes. we get to the other side? So, well, obviously, I think what's been particularly difficult from a mental health standpoint for everybody is the uncertainty, right? We, we, you know, I, I would love to be able to answer you, but obviously I can't answer you with 100% certainty, right? Because we don't know for sure what's coming. Um, and that uncertainty is one of the most difficult things for everyone. And it generates a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety, which trips off for people who are already potentially struggling a lot of mental health issues. And, and then, of course, some of the antidotes being, you know, social distancing and, you know, limiting our lives and our interactions with people has been, you know, extra difficult. We know loneliness was already a public health issue before this pandemic. Now it's just, you know, enormous. And we know that long stretches of loneliness do, again, lead to depression and anxiety. So, you know, it's a confluence of a lot of, it's a perfect storm in terms of this pandemic and the ongoing uncertainty. But what I can say is this, um, most people that undergo a trauma and, uh, you know, a serious, even life-threatening trauma do not go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. It's really a very small number. Most people have, for some period of time, what's called an acute stress reaction, which may include depression, anxiety, um, you know, uh, upsetting thoughts, uh, difficulty sleeping, all of these symptoms that a lot of us are struggling with now. But ultimately, that resolves. And that's because we are really very resilient beings, as it turns out, human beings. And so we learn that we can tolerate certain things, and we can go on and have certain things. And we we do with resilience, look back, oh, well, I got in 2020, I got through this. So if I can get through that and be okay, then this thing that just came along, I, I can get through, I can get through and be okay. And that is what builds resilience. And so I think that, um, that we will, in terms of mental health, as people get treatment, and as this goes on, I do think more and more people will be able to find the strength to, let's say, bounce back. But I also think something else is going on, which is this has been the biggest change nationally in behavior probably ever made in people's lifetimes in 2020, right? That we said to an entire nation, shut down, shut down your businesses, go inside, distance from people, wear a mask, do all these things. The biggest, even when we told people, hey, guess what? Smoking causes cancer. Did that stop everyone from smoking? No, no, people still smoked and they still smoke, even though they know it could cause lung cancer. So this is the hugest behavioral change. And what drove that change? Fear, huge fear, fear of getting sick, fear of dying, fear of being contaminated with COVID. And so that is hard to undo, right? That is, that is, that takes a lot of, um, positive reinforcement of like, you're okay if you don't do those things to undo that. That's what's part of what's making it so hard for people to like go back to work. And so even though we may arrive at a place where COVID is endemic, right? Meaning we'll never get rid of it. People will get boosters once a year. Um, people continue to get it, but they won't become severely ill and die. They will become sick. And their risk of becoming severely sick will go to something like the flu 
or maybe even less, if you look at these numbers, this is something I talk about a lot as a person who treats anxiety disorders. You look at the odds. And so realistically speaking, perhaps the odds become the same odds as if you drove your car today and would you get in a car wreck, right? So we know a certain number of people get in a car wreck every year and die, but we don't not drive as a result. We know that a certain number of people get struck by lightning each year and die, but we don't cower every time there's a thunderstorm. And so we will hopefully arrive at a place where we understand that the odds, if we're vaccinated and boosted, are such that we're not going to stop living our lives. And we will love our lives. And maybe we take certain precautions. Maybe we say, if we're all going to get together at something unmasked, we do a test beforehand or whatever. But this will become more comfortable and not as scary. And we'll be able to put the perspective on that it's not, you know, high odds like it was in March of 2020, where I'm in New York City. And you know what? It was scary around here because we had nothing and people were dying in high numbers. But it won't be like that. And, um, and then I think that will help people to be able to ultimately carry on with our lives. I, I, do, I do believe ultimately we'll get there, but I really believe in the short run, a lot of people do need mental health care for the traumatic impact that this past year and a half to two years has, has had on them. Yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Saltz, you... Um... You have educated me, and I know you have educated our listeners and our viewers on so many different topics. You know, when when we first were going to talk, we were going to stick to RAD, and RAD was it. But what I realized by talking to you, there's so many other connections. You know, there just because my son is diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, there's other things that are attached. And, and I will have to tell you that just thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, thank, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, for kids who do have reactive attachment disorder, um, you know, there are treatments and I'm sure you're aware of that. But I, I guess it's fair to say that, um, unfortunately, right, we like I said, we don't have a blood test. We don't have a pill. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a work in progress always to try to help those, for example, who are suffering with reactive attachment disorder to find what I like to call workarounds in therapy, workarounds to find the ability to feel attached or to learn the rules of empathy, you know, which might not innately feel as immediate and easy as it does to somebody who, you know, develops that part of their brain young on, but who they can learn certain things as coping skills, as workarounds to make life more livable and, you know, comfortable for themselves. Yeah. And the fact is, is my husband and I both have hope and so do our other four kids. And so um, we love our son and we love him unconditionally. And I think that's the first step for anyone to be healed is to try to get them to feel that unconditional love. Listen, Dr. Saltz, we are so, so excited. Thank you for joining Fostering Change. Listen, everyone, please visit gap.org. Um, I want you to learn about it. I want you to not just listen to this podcast, but really start doing what I talk, say all the time. Talk about it. Talk about it at the water cooler. Talk about it as you're at that overpriced coffee shop. Talk about it as you're sitting around at your family's table and talk about it. Because the more times we speak about it, the more it becomes 
normal. It becomes normal. Until next time, this is Rob Shear, the host of Fostering Change. Take care, everybody. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for listening or watching the latest episode of Fostering Change. All of us on our team hope that you've learned something new today and have been inspired to be a good human. Now, just a reminder that you can always find Fostering Change on your favorite channels on Google, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and others including, of course, ComfortCases.org. I want to give a big thank you to all of you for joining us each and every week. And a reminder that if you have a suggestion for a guest, or maybe you might have a question about today's podcast, or are interested in becoming a sponsor of Fostering Change, please don't hesitate to email me personally at fosteringchange@comfortcases.org. Now, that's it for now. Thanks again, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Take care.